It's good to be with you. It's amazing. You know, I, I was a full-time pastor for almost 35 years. And uh, coming up two and a half years in this position, not doing it as often, you, you get that anxiety, you know, and especially in front of the home crowd. You know, but uh, I, I, I really, as Karen noticed, I think I was excited about the opportunity uh, as I began to study and prepare for this and kind of getting back into that mode of, one element I do miss of being a pastor is preaching weekly and uh, the relationships that are there. Uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. We're looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 to 14. In your bulletin is an insert, and uh, it's kind of my outline, and it keeps me honest. It, it helps you because it keeps me on track, and uh, it also helps you maybe make some notes and uh, to remember. But... Um, What I want to do is kind of go through the sermon and then read the text proportionally as we go through that. So I encourage you to open it. I'll be be reading from the New American Standard Version, so it's a little different from yours. But let's uh, uh, seek God as we go to his word. Father, as we come to you today, I thank you. I thank you for the privilege that I have to share God's word with your people. And we ask now that your spirit might go before us. I ask you to remove any error that's in my mind as we come to your word. And that your spirit might speak to us the truth that you have for each of us. To guide us and direct us in how you have us to live. We humbly come before you today, before your word. That it may be living and active in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As you come to this this text, we come dealing with the idea of grace. Now, i got to qualify this a little bit. If you're ever near my house at some point in time and you hear me hollering, Grace, glory... Uh, my wife got two cats, and one cat is gray, and she called it Grace. And the other cat, to match that, she called Glory. Now, if you don't know me very well, I am not, they're her cats. I'll, let's just leave it right there. <laughs> so as I'm going through this sermon talking about Grace, I realized it really applied to my relationships with these cats, because we won't go any further than that. In, in that. But the idea of grace is a powerful thing. It is something that is really hard for us to fully grasp, God's grace given to us. Christianity is probably the only religion that expresses salvation based solely and completely in this unmerited grace. But what does it mean? And, and how do we react to receiving God's grace? Uh, the writer of Romans anticipated what might be a problem in how people interpreted and acted based on this powerful idea of grace. Now let me qualify, as I said, the author of Romans. Uh, I believe Paul probably wrote the book of Romans, but it's not definitive. So I try to say the author of Romans instead of injecting that, but I probably will at some point. So just substitute the idea that although I believe it probably was Paul, that's not definitive in that. So as we look at grace, the reality of this is that it is an overwhelming subject. It is an overwhelming concept of God's absolute grace that he imparts to us. Uh, now, a book that probably many of us have read, it was written a number of years ago by Philip Yancey. What's so amazing about grace? He tells a story of a friend of his that came to him and was seeking counsel. 
And the friend came, and, and he was a Christian. He'd been married about 15 years, and he confessed to uh, Dr. Yancey that um, he was not in love with his wife. He had met another woman that was the right woman for him, and he said, won't God forgive me if I divorce my wife and marry this woman? He was looking for affirmation to go ahead and sin. And the reality of understanding that grace, he was looking to say, God will forgive me for this, right? And, and I wonder in our lives, how many times do we act, maybe not to that degree, but maybe we say, I know this is a sin, but I'll just ask forgiveness later. And it, it, I, I, tell, I told my staff when I first came, the, uh, if you ever heard the idea, it's easier to ask forgiveness and permission. I don't like that. I was real plain with that. My kids knew that. It doesn't fly very far with me. Because that's the same concept here. That I'm going to go ahead and sin because I know God's grace is sufficient and it's going to cover my sin. And that's kind of what was happening there with that. Because many practice this way of thinking and, and it's critical about the idea of grace. It's more simple than it is the idea that I know that it's sin, but eh, I'm going to live with that. So the reality is... is the writer of Romans writes here, he realized this might be a conflict. So he responds to that as he's writing and introducing this concept of grace to the, to the church in Rome. He does so with this qualification in verses 1 to 7 that we pick up here in verse chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might in the newness of life. Excuse me, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall all... You know, or, or you know, we, 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 we see something that we want and we manipulate the situation to get that. But it's basically based in our selfish nature. And that's, that's part of our fallen state. So that we're acting in rebellion. So, okay, the first acknowledgement, the fact that we have to say is we all need forgiveness. And that forgiveness is based in the grace of God. So, Christ in what he did, Christ's sacrifice, has grace abounding. And, and that's the neat thing about God's grace. It's never just called God's simple grace. It's always God's unmerited abounding grace. It is flowing. Unbelievable. And that's the one thing when I, when I first read Philip Yancey's book, that he talks about that element of grace and, and really understanding what that means. To give that unmerited grace, to give that, it doesn't matter what the other person thinks, says, or does. You're giving it solely based on your desire to give grace, and that's what God does for us. So Christ's sacrifice has grace abounding. Just like Adam's sin condemned us, we have grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His grace overturned the effect of Adam's sin. And all we have to do is to receive Christ, accept that sacrifice that he did on the cross for us, and we are imputed, just like we were imputed with Adam's sins, we are imputed with Christ's righteousness. We all know the scripture. 
My righteousness is like filthy rags. But we are imputed with Christ's righteousness, which is a clothes of pure white, untarnished in any way, shape, or form. His sacrifice overturned the effect of Adam's failure in our lives and gave us a relationship with the God. God's strategy, and I love this picture, God's strategy to overcome the effects of sin was to drown them in a waterfall of grace. Now picture that. If you've ever had an opportunity to stand under a waterfall, uh, I, I went to Tekoa, I was visiting Tekoa back a number of years ago when we had some students there, and, and saw the, the waterfall that's there. Now I don't know that I'd want to stand under that in the rainy season, it's pretty, pretty profound, but other times I've been around waterfalls, if you go to Honduras, there's a place just down from the, the compound that we used to go swimming and there's a waterfall there, but it's just a continual nature of water flowing over there and you can stand over and just washes over you. You know, and, and that sounds so great. But the idea here is, is the waterfall is continuous, continuously flows. It is an unending reserve of God's grace to us. So then, if God's grace, Christ's sacrifice, reverts that, so then how is grace applied in our lives? Now, again, Paul's reacting here to a misunderstanding of grace, his fear that they may misunderstand. So their fear, his fear was that they would say, so if I sin and grace is poured out on me and I want grace, maybe I should continue in sin so more grace will come. You know, it gives us a license. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, so that gives an open avenue for us to do whatever we want to do to sin and to live however we want to live. And, And it's interesting, Paul's answer here is very precise. He says, Absolutely not. No way. Why? Because we, through this grace, have died to sin. In other words, we are dead to living that way, to, to living in effect of sin. So, as we, as we think of this picture of grace being poured out to us and the effect of that on our life, I want us to look at the picture of salvation and baptism. Now, he says here, we have died to sin. Does this mean we never sin again? If that's what it means, I'm a failure. Actually, if that's what it means, Scripture's wrong, because 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10 says, but if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So then, all of you who sit back there and say, well, I'm perfect, you're a liar. Okay? Okay, you're a liar. And and the reality is we have all sinned. We all need that forgiveness. So it's not saying that that we are dead to sin in the sense we're never going to sin again because Scripture goes against that. Maybe it's saying that when we're dead to sin, it means that Christians no longer enjoy sin. That's it. We receive Christ and he removes that innate desire to live in sin. But, but if that's the case, then I'm missing something. Because sin is still very attractive. It, it sells itself to us as, as being pleasurable. It sells itself to us as, as something that's going to make us feel better or feel good about it. Maybe even as a Christian I do it and I'm broken and hurt that I did it later. But the temptation is still there. 
And it's not because it's not tempting that I don't do that. And if we say that, we're lying and, and we're really hiding ourselves from this mentality. Debbie Boone wrote a song, I'm dating myself here. If it feels good, it must be right. And it was portrayed as a Christian song until I read that verse. I read that line in it. If it feels so good, it must be right. That's not true. It's not true at all. The reality for us is, is yes, sin is still can be attractive. It can be tempting. The world can make it look pleasurable. So what is it saying here? We are dead in our sins. The picture here is really almost the perfect picture of baptism. As, as we stand before God, before receiving Christ's sacrifice and receiving Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we stand dead in sin. We have absolutely no way of meriting salvation. We are dead in our sins, and we're going to face judgment, and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't keep the law. We can't be perfect. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to merit it. We are dead in our sins. But when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are buried with him in his crucifixion. That crucifixion pays the price for the sins of our lives. And we're buried in that. And then we're raised to new life. You, if you've experienced baptism, and if you have, you've probably experienced the counseling of understanding what that is. That's, that's what it typifies. That's why we practice immersion, because it is the best representation of what, what baptism is called for in Jesus Christ. For a believer to stand before a congregation and to say, I was dead in my sins. I was going to face hell. I was judged, condemned before God. But I asked Jesus Christ and, and died to him, was buried with him, and now I'm living for him. And that's when as a pastor that I put that handkerchief over and say they're dead, they're buried, and they're raised to new life. I used to share when I baptized someone that the angels in heaven are throwing a party because another believer has come home. You know, the reality of that picture for us and that baptism is so important is, is a clear statement. It is a pivotal mark in our lives that I am going to live for Christ. I receive God's grace in my life. Now, in verse 6 here, he steps up. He says, now know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we may no longer be slaves to sin, but he who has died is freed from sin. Now, <clears throat> Is, is this promoting the idea of this Gnostic thought that what happens in the flesh isn't really important? You know, is, is that body? No, it's, it, we're still, we're still a, a joint element. What are you saying here? Yes, in the, in the kingdom, we're going to lose this sinful body. But in our current state, because we have asked Jesus Christ, we are freed from the condemnation of sin in our bodies. And we are freed from the... Uh, the lack of ability of dealing with that sin. So as we look at this, uh, we realize that in our sinful self, we're dead. We are dead to sin as we struggle with that. And, and one of the great elements that I love about this, <clears throat> and I share with people, the, the effects of the Holy Spirit, and the effects of this new life in Christ, is that when I sin, the Holy Spirit convicts me. When I sin... 
and I acknowledge that that is different than what God wants me to do in my life, there is a mourning there. And that is the greatest evidence in our lives that we are a believer in Jesus Christ. Because it is the effect of that grace working in us that the Holy Spirit's able to pierce our heart to the point of saying, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I remember I was baptized when I was nine years old. And I remember coming up out of the water and feeling that, that exhilaration of being a new creature in Christ. And I was never going to sin again. Anybody ever had that feeling with me? Never going to sin again. I've always said, first day back at school, I blew it. Let me tell you something. Having two sisters and older and younger, probably that afternoon, I blew it. Okay? The reality is we can't live without sin. We struggle with it. It's going to be a battle. And that's not what Paul's saying here. So the reality of God's grace is it frees us We're in a new reality with Christ, and we're in a struggle with the sinful self, the the nature that we have lived with, and we're going to be battling with that. So then, what's the realization here? Verses 8 to to 11. We are alive to God here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this idea of counting yourself dead to sin, when we experience Christ's death through our salvation, and his death, realize, is a once forever event. He doesn't have to meet a quota, so many Christians, and now he's got to be crucified again because that grace was not sufficient. Remember it says, his ever-sufficient grace. Once we've identified ourselves with that, for all The sacrifice covers all of our sins for all of us. His life changed everything. Go back to to the beginning here. Grace changes everything. His life changes everything. His sacrifice covered the spiritual condemning effect of sin in my life. I am no longer condemned. That's That's why we can say that... We are, already have the victory in Christ. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, okay, it's not that he's going to, to defeat Satan. Satan is already defeated, and he knows it. Okay? We have that victory in Christ because that was complete. But Jesus now lives alive. He ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. His part of paying our debt is totally complete. He is ruling with the Father now. So that first two verses there, three verses, 8, 9, and 10, is talking about being with Christ. In an element, it's talking about being in the kingdom. And and that's our promise. But that verse 11 there, it keys in again. It says, right there, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. 
Okay, so we are dead to sin. That is to say, I am no longer living for the gratification of the body. I am dead to that element that that I'm succumbing to that constantly. I am alive to God. So what does that mean? It introduces a new way of life. It introduces to us that, that we are now serving a new master. We are under a whole different set of principles. We are a different people. We live for a different cause. Our goals and desires and glory is found in Christ. Every decision that we make is founded in the desire to glorify God. It's founded in the truths of God's word. How I am a husband, how I am a father, how I serve in my job, how I act on the highway, how I act in the grocery store, the decisions that I make about my money, the decisions of how I affect strangers, the decisions of how I do anything is founded in the grace and the new way of life that I have. I am alive in God. Now, it's an ongoing struggle. It's a struggle with the old self and the new self. That is that's what it means to live under God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom isn't yet established on the earth. <clears throat> Jesus inaugurated that with his death and his resurrection. Uh, through his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection, we live under that rule and reign subject to a whole new reality that's breaking in on the status quo of our world. This new way of life we are introduced to is a resurrection kind of life where we live by a set of standards and values. We are directed by, our li- by a different set of assumptions. Instead of being directed by the culture that we live in, we're directed by the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of our decisions being based in, in, in the culture of our world or, or what's accepted in our world, we base them on the Bible. And that's where we we gain our strength. Instead of defining success by our cultural standards, we define success by pleasing God. I can please God digging a ditch. I can please God making a little bit of money or making a lot of money. Whatever circumstance that God puts me in, I can please Him and glorify Him. So then, we are dead to sin in living in that way, and we are alive to God. That's the effect of grace that it has in our lives. All right, now, that's what's happened. Now it's decisions that we have to make over our mortal bodies. Now, now realize, once we receive God's grace, he's covered our sins. We have the grace of God. He lives within us. But we're still battling this physical body. We're still battling with the um, habits and the elements of ourselves that are going to be there that we've got to overcome. Now, we have to make a decision over our mortal bodies. We struggle to make the mortal body compatible with the new reality that we're living in, having now known Jesus Christ. The habits and patterns that are deeply ingrained within us in our lives uh, may come out in, in mere reflex to where we are. We're tempted to respond in old ways. We make a decision in how we live in our new reality, that we are going to change these old habits. Now, I read somewhere a long time ago, it takes 30 days to establish a habit. In other words, you have to do something consistently for 30 days before you can feel like it's become a habit. And, And what I found was that they say the best way to break an old habit 
is to replace that habit with a good habit. Okay, and I and I I read this in helping somebody in dealing with uh, cigarettes and whatever, and they were talking about to break that habit. When are the times that you most crave a cigarette? And this guy said, right after supper. I always go and sit down and, and, and have a cigarette. I said, so how do you break that? He goes, if I go sit down, I'm going to want one. He said, so I'm going to get up from the dinner table. I'm going to go outside, take a walk, do, do a chore or whatever. And that was one way he had of breaking that habit. Now, in our lives, we identify our, quote, pet sins, those things that we struggle with. We need to identify what those are and and how am I going to deal with those. We are making a decision over our everyday life to glorify God in how we live. Now, most of us don't struggle a lot with this in church. You know, that's pretty easy. You know, when you're here and you're around other believers, you know, and everybody's kind of watching your shoulder, you know, you're, you're pretty good shape. We struggle with it in everyday life. We struggle with it driving on 485. You know, when somebody cuts you off, you know, and, and your initial reaction is, I'm going to catch up with him and blow my horn or maybe do some other things that aren't real nice. You know, that's, that's human nature and how we normally react. So how do we react as a Christian? I'm going to drive up beside him and say, God bless you. And then I'm, I'm, I struggle with that a little bit. I'm going to pray for him and say, Lord, protect him and those around him. I'm going to respond to him in grace. Grace, he's not merited. He doesn't deserve that. But I'm reacting the way God has blessed me. And we're determining those things in our lives. We're, we're tempted in, in, our, in our homes when we're sitting there relaxed and all of a sudden something happens and we immediately react in the old way. How about on the baseball field or basketball court? Or how about if we're watching baseball or basketball? How do we react? That old self just pops right out. Throw the elbow, right? Grab the face mask. Holler at the ref. How do we react? We realize those temptations are not going to change unless we take an action of doing that. So we claim a decision over our mortal bodies, a decision over our everyday life, that this is how I want to act. So then... We make a decision that we are going to offer our bodies to God. That's what he says here, that we're going to offer our bodies. We're going to offer the parts of our bodies as weapons in the battlefield of righteousness. Instead of lying with our mouths, we're going to build people up with love and grace. Instead of hitting people with our hands, we're going to serve out of love and grace. Even if they don't deserve it, we're going to do it because it's what God would do. Now, now realize it's one or the other. Now, a lot of people had this mentality, I'm going to seek God's forgiveness, but this whole idea of living this righteous, goody life, that's not me. It's not my personality. Scripture doesn't give us that option. We are called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And, and we need to strive to do that completely. Because in that, we are no longer under sin's domination in our lives. We are no longer under that. We have been freed from that that reality that sin reigns. I have no power over sin. You have been given victory over sin. Amen? 
That's biblical, right? Right from Scripture. Do we claim that? So many times we say, well, that's just how I'm made. Or that's how she is. We just got to accept her. No. That's the effect of the fall of Adam. We are no longer under that. We are under the grace of God that gives us victory over that. And when the Holy Spirit impacts us to say that is sin in your life, you are responsible to deal with that sin. It always amazes me. You get around Christians and they say, well, this is sin. Well, I don't know that it's sin. What does that say to me? It says that that God's hit you on that one, and he's probably going to hit this guy a little later in his life on that one. You see, because God's dealing with us. You know, if God tried to change everything wrong with Steve Lawson all at once, I would just shut down altogether. But God touches those areas of my life that aren't glorifying him. And, and he touches that and says, it's time to deal with that in your life. And he may put people in our lives to do that. We are no, excuse me, no longer under this power of sin. We still struggle, but it's not our master. Paul says we are no longer under law, but under grace. Paul is saying here, no longer live under that old creation of having to keep all the laws to to be holy, to be righteous, because you're not going to do that. Because we've changed kingdoms. We've changed masters. So everything we are is under grace in how we live and what we do. And it's a powerful thing for us to live and experience that. Okay, so, so, so we're down to our application here. <clears throat> and as we look at this, I, I want to qualify. As you look at this passage, I've always looked at this passage and I realized it as I was studying. All the pronouns in this passage are plural. Okay? Again, I'm going to say it. Paul is addressing to the Roman church as the church. He's saying this to the body. You have experienced this. You have been baptized into this new life. You have this new reality. You together. And, and Matt has been talking about what the church is all about and how we work together. And this, this text is so powerful in that effect in our lives. We're working at this together. So then, I, I, I like acronyms. If, if you hear me preach very much, a lot of times I use them. <clears throat> the theme here, God's grace changes us. For the better. Better is the acronym. B-E-T-T-E-R is the acronym. The B is the realization I'm being on God's side. It is a change when we come under grace. We are a new creation in Christ. We are in a whole new dynamic of life. I'm on God's side. Let me let you on a hint. I'm on the winning side. It's already declared. He's won. Amen? He's won. So, B, I'm on God's side. E here, entering the battle against sin. And it is a battle. No longer can I sit back and say, eh, God made me this way and just stuck with it. Because God's grace has covered those sins, he has transformed us of being uh, alive to sin to dead to sin, and through his Holy Spirit empowering us to have victory over sin. And he's called us to do that. And we enter that battle. The T. I am totally committed 
to live for Christ. I am totally committed to live for Christ. There's no halves. God's got me from Sunday to Wednesday. And then I'll ask forgiveness on Sunday. God's got me with the family. He's got me in the neighborhood. But when I'm at work, one of the most powerful things for me is when I was in college, I came home the first summer and I worked at the paper mill where my dad worked. And, you know, it was out there and and I knew a lot of the guys. I played golf with them and different things with my dad. And they were very, very, very different back in the paper mill in Savannah than they were on the golf course with a 15 to 16-year-old boy. Their language was different. Their actions were different. Their jokes were different. Because they really didn't see me as Hank's son anymore. I was just an 18, 19-year-old kid out there working. But when you mention my father's name, that was a man that was the same. That's for us. I am totally committed to live for Christ. The other T. I have turned over a new lease on life. I have turned over a new lease on life. I have changed. Now, for those around you, that may not be evident for the first little while. Okay? I was talking to a friend of mine that works with a biker church, and he had one of the bikers give a testimony not long after he, um, he accepted Christ. And he said, I wish I'd had a bleeper on the mic. He said, because this guy's language hadn't been fully sanctified yet. As he described his life and how God had changed him. You know, but you know, the reality is I am turning over a new lease on life. I am going to change. I'm committed to that in, in how I live. The second E. Eternity is my future. This is not home. This isn't everything. I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the kingdom that's coming. God has given me abundant life here, but wow, what's coming ahead of me. Eternity is my future. And then the R. I am resting in the truth of God's grace. That means every time I fail and Satan jumps on that shoulder and says, See, you're not a Christian. You can't do it. Da-da-da-da. The Holy Spirit's on the other shoulder saying, but God's grace is sufficient. Let me tell you the power. This comes out of Yancey's book. So powerful in this. In accepting God's grace. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Period. But here's the other qualifier. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. Because God loves you, period. That's what's amazing about God's grace. It can't be based in what we can do because we can do nothing. And all that we do to glorify Him, He deserves. So you see, grace changes everything. It changes everything in our life. When we receive Jesus Christ, we should be different. I've had new believers say, do I have to give up my friends? I say, no, you've got to live for Christ. And if you're living for Christ, they're either going to receive Christ or they're going to leave you. Because they're not going to be comfortable because you're different. You see, we are living a new life. The experience of that is profound in our lives, and we must accept that and claim it and strive in our lives to glorify God in everything that we do. I challenge you. Do you experience 
the effect of grace. Do you realize? I think part of it is just realizing grace. And in doing that, I'm, I'm not going to live that. I don't have to accept that how, that's how I am. God's grace, His mercy, and the power of the Holy Spirit can empower me to change my life. And that's what I want to do because I love Him. Everything I do is based on how much I love Him and what He's done for me. Fathers, we come together today. As the writer here in Romans wrote to the church in Rome, and, and, and this thesis of doctrine of the book of Romans, the letter that he wrote, here in chapter 6, even after he has expounded how sin is innate within us, is imputed upon us, that he shares the imputed righteousness that we have in Christ and the change that it takes within us. Lord, I claim that today for the church in 2018, for the believers in 2018. For the individuals within this sanctuary who know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, the effect of that grace on us changes everything in our lives. And we must accept that and live for it for you. So now, Father, I pray in our lives that we would commit ourselves to that. To seek and desire for you to work within us in a powerful way. Father, within us now, maybe there's things you've put your, the Holy Spirit's put their finger on and said, you need to change this. And we're saying, Lord, that's just me. I ask that we would surrender that to you. To give it over. To make us new. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.